All right, everybody, welcome to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. This week, we are going to dive into NXS's Kick album. D, this was one of my favorite albums, basically, of 1988. I can't wait to get into this one with you. We are going to have a good time tonight, and the rock and roll music is going to play all night. I'm standing. You were here. Two worlds collided, and they will never tear us apart. <laughs> as long as you don't ask me what you know is true, we should be good, right? <laughs> yeah, this may not be the song that we need to listen to together, necessarily, <laughs> other than for this podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast, discussing and debating the iconic and the forgotten of 80s and 90s pop culture with your co-hosts, James D. Graves and Jason Colvin. Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast, where this week we are going to dive into NXS's Kick album. Super excited to be here. I love so much of the music on this album. I'm excited to dive into it. But first, what you need to know is that we are comparing this album to George Michael's Faith, first solo album of the Bearded Wonder himself, and it's also an incredible album, so it'll be a neat competition to see which one of these two amazing albums from 1987, head-to-head, see which one of them is the pop star best of the two. I'm excited because you and I have covered a lot of sort of heavier bands. We covered Nirvana and Pearl Jam, we've covered Def Leppard and Van Halen, we've done Guns N' Roses and ACDC, but we're really, we're going to cover all types of 80s bands i really am excited what we got coming down the pipe yeah we we don't want to limit ourselves we are certainly rockers at heart but there's just no denying that some of these albums that were more in the pop realm than in the rock realm were huge facets in our lives during the 80s that's right and there's tons of interesting stories as we dive into these the stories behind the songs the stories behind the artists both of the singers george michael and michael hutchins they're, they're gone they're no longer with us Yep. It's going to be interesting to dive in and take a fresh look and appreciate what they've left behind for us. Absolutely. Two guys who look better than any other human being on earth in a leather jacket and no shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Two guys who could have bedded just about any lady in the entire world in 1988. I don't know why you're limiting it to lady, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. I, I, that's right. Knowing what we've got in front of us, let's dive in. Okay, this is really cool. NXS's Kick album, this is how old this is. It came out October 12th, 1987 on LP and cassette. And cassette. Yes, yeah. And October 26th on CD. Had two different release dates, one for the tape, one for the CD, basically. So. Right, CDs were just becoming a thing around that time. Oh yeah, I didn't have a CD player at this time. My, I was cassette all the way. All right, so for those who are not familiar with this band, it is actually pronounced in excess. Right, it's not, not inks. inks. No. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing screamed you were out of touch more in the 80s than calling these guys inks. Right, yeah. <laughs> so these guys are all from Australia. Michael Hutchins was born in Australia, then moved to Hong Kong for a while, then moved back to Australia, and that he was just coming into high school at that time, and that's where he met Andrew Ferris. It was like the scene out of My Bodyguard. Michael Hutchins comes to school in his first 10 minutes in school, and he's already in a fight with somebody, and Andrew Ferris happens to know the guy who's four feet taller than everybody else, and he's like, hey, go break up that fight. That's how 
Andrew Ferris and Michael Hutchins meet for the first time. That's a Weird. super cool story. I mean, we talk about moments in rock and roll history. Right. NXS was the biggest band in the world at one time. It started because a school bully started beating up a guy and another guy stepped in. Yeah. So they became fast friends, but then Michael Hutchins' parents unfortunately split up and he moved with his mother to Hollywood for about a year or so. He ultimately moved back. And at that time, he met up with his old friend, Andrew Ferris again, who by this time had started playing music. He actually had started playing long ago, but he had started putting together bands. When Andrew Ferris was only five years old, his family took a holiday and they went and they saw the Beatles perform live. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. I did. Yeah. I, I saw Kirk Pingilly talk about how they were in class. These guys were all five. Of these guys went to high school together. Well, first of all, three of them are brothers, right? Right. Yeah, Ferris Tim brothers. Ferris, Andrew Ferris, and John Ferris. Yes. Then you have Gary Gary Beers. That's I, I didn't stutter. That's his name, Gary <laughs> Gary Beers. Right. And then you have Michael Hutchins, who was getting beat up by the by the school bully. These are six guys who were high school buddies. But I saw I saw Kirk Pingilly talking about how they were in biology class or whatever, and I guess he knew Michael as a a, a new friend of Andrew's, uh -huh. and he looked. And sort of looked over his shoulder in science class, and he saw in his notebook that he had sort of sketched out a drawing of two guitars, and he thought, yeah, this guy's pretty cool. And they, they hit it off right from there. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so Gary Gary Beers, his real name is actually Gary William Beers, and it's <laughs> Gary double R, Gary single R Beers, uh, if, you, if you need to know the spelling there. And the reason that there's a double R and a single R is that it was a misprint on the album in excess, their first, their debut album, <laughs> and he just decided to go with it. He's like, yeah, well, I'll be Gary, Gary double R, Gary single R Beers. And he was in a band called Legolas Elfin Warrior in 1975. He played acoustic guitar for them, but he wasn't really very good at the acoustic guitar. And so he switched to bass, but then refused to take lessons and seemed to do well at any, anyway, despite the fact that he wasn't taking lessons. And so he formed Dr. Dolphin with Andrew Ferris and some other classmates named Jeff Kinley, Kent Kearney, and Neil Sanders. And they can be put in that category of Mark Stone. That we no, really. About. I used to be in NXS for about five minutes. <laughs> yeah. That guy. Yeah. So at the same time that they were doing Dr. Dolphin, Tim Ferriss was playing in various groups with his friend, Kirk Pengilly. And John had actually tried out. John was the youngest of the Ferris brothers. Um, he had tried out to be a drummer with a band called Guinness with Tim and Kirk, uh, but he was turned down because he was nine years old. <laughs> <laughs> When finally, you know, the two groups, Tim Ferriss's group and Andrew Ferriss's group merged together to become the Ferris Brothers in 1977, John joined as the drummer at that time. I can only imagine that they called themselves the Ferris Brothers because like everybody at their high school knew them as the Ferris Brothers. Like that was just much easier than trying to figure out a new band name. They're like, everyone knows you guys. We'll just call you the Ferris Brothers. You know, as dorky as the Ferris Brothers band sounds, uh -huh. is that any different than Winger or Bon Jovi or Van Halen? Yeah, good point. I show that they were also called the Vegetables sometime between Dr. Dolphin and In Excess. That name is substantially less cool than In Excess. <laughs> right. Slightly, slightly less cool than Dr. Dolphin, 
way less cool than NXS. So once John had graduated from high school, they changed their name to NXS and they all moved to Sydney to start doing the pub scene. Let's talk about the name for just a second, okay? okay. I don't want to get yeah. too far ahead. They were supporting Midnight Oil, okay? Midnight Oil is a big Australian band, right? right. Beds are burning. You probably are familiar with that tune. That's it. You got it. But one of the guys from Midnight Oil encouraged them to change their name. He wanted them to have a new name, and he recommended they change it to NXS. That's I-N-X-S. That was inspired by the English band XTC. Ecstasy. Right. Ecstasy. And I-X-L. So that's how they came up with the name NXS. All right. So the band's first performance as NXS was September 1st. 1979 at the Ocean Beach Hotel. And this is the time in their career where they're kind of kicking around the idea of being a Christian band. Oh, yeah. So after performing on the pub scene for about a year, they landed a record contract and they released their debut album, which was called In Excess in 1980. In Excess released their first single, Simple Simon slash We Are the Vegetables. <laughs> In Australia and and France in May of 1980. Then they had another one called Underneath the Colors in 1981. Both of those were big in Australia, and that led to them getting a contract with Atco Records. And in 1983, they released their U.S. debut, which was Shabu Shaba, and they started touring with a big hit that they had off that album called Don't Change. So between 1980 and 1984, they did four studio albums. But in 1983, they were a part of a festival that we have talked about before. The festival that involved the largest pay date for any band in history, that being Van Halen. Yeah. But NXS was a part of the US Festival second edition 1983 and they talked about performing there and they got called back out for an encore and it felt amazing and this is 83 this is before any of these songs have made them international successes and they were they got encored back out and then they went home and they had some chili and they watched the news and the news was showing only them as the band for the us festival that, is that had fantastic. to be amazing yeah <laughs> Five high school buddies <laughs> who used to copy off each other in science class are getting encored at the US Festival. Yeah. Amazing. For the next album that they did, they did a few sessions with uh, the producer Nile Rogers, and that's where they got that funky original sin, which showed that they were kind of changing their feel from this kind of new wave style to more of a combination of Rolling Stones type rock and dance music. Okay, um, let's talk about the original. First of all, yeah. Nile Rogers, who you will remember from our Coming to America episode, he right. is the composer that has that big The Lion Sleeps Tonight intro at the beginning of Coming to America, flashback yeah. to our Coming to America episode. The original Sin, that song in 1984, yes, that song was big and impactful kind of in a negative way. So I, I, I saw this interview with the band. I thought this was really interesting. So there's a couple of lyrics in that song. Dream on white boy, white boy. Dream on black girl, black girl. And so some people took that as interracial marriage and the world wasn't really ready for that. And 
So, but certainly not the Bible Belt back in 1984. That's true. And so there were a lot of radio stations that wouldn't play that song. And so their manager, Chris Murphy, was brought in before the head of the record company, right? And basically said, "You guys need to stop giving me this controversial crap and give me hits. <laughs> you go talk to your effing band and tell them." to stop this crap and give me something I can play on the radio. I feel like the record company is going to be the bad guy for a couple of stories on this particular <laughs> episode. Before we get off the original sin, I did want to mention, it wasn't like the song wasn't a hit either. I mean, the record company guy was all mad, but that was a number one hit in Australia. I hit number one in France. I hit number one in Argentina. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a great song. Okay, so they had worked with producers... They had worked with the producer, Nile Rogers, and they had also worked with another producer called Mike Opitz. But then in 1985, they decided to go with the producer, Christopher Thomas, Chris Thomas, for Listen Like Thieves, which I, I got to listen to Christopher Thomas talk about. He's, he is an interesting guy. So he was, he was born in 47, just to give you a, a base here. And he knew how to play instruments. He actually got offered a job to play bass with Jimi Hendrix but it was before Jimi Hendrix became famous. So he's like, no, thanks. <laughs> and then he was like, what? I don't really like performing live. I really like being in the studio more. And so he decided, okay, you know, I think I'd prefer to be on the production side of things. And so he decides, you know, I'm going to write a letter to George Martin, the guy who produces the Beatles albums. I'm going to see if he'll give me a job. And he did. He did. Wow. Wow. And so he's the the Beatles are working on the White Album, which is like I mean it's one of the their biggest albums of all time, and George Martin is there, and then Chris Thomas goes on this holiday, goes on a vacation as we call him here in the in the United States, and when he comes back, there's just a note from George, and he says, "I hope you enjoyed your holiday. I'm going on my holiday now. You're in charge." He's a 20 year old guy in charge of producing a Beatles album. And so he's like, okay. And then Paul McCartney walks in and he's like, where's George? <laughs> and What's this little 20 year old, you know, kid is like, uh, he's left. And he's, he looks at him and he's like, so are you going to produce the album? And he oh. says, yeah, that's, I guess that's what's happening. He's like, well, I guess if you can produce, you can produce. And, you know, he's probably just testing him. I mean, he had to know. Like, George Martin didn't just leave and not tell Paul McCartney, but Paul McCartney's <laughs> totally screwing with him. And so they go down and they start playing, and he's doing the best that he can. He's kind of quiet in the booth. And the band would have meetings. They owned Apple Records at, the, at that point, and they would have meetings in the middle of their sessions about Apple Records. And he happens to overhear them talking in this meeting, and they're like, this guy's just not doing his job at all. And he, they're probably talking about an Apple Records employee, but he thinks, oh, gosh, it's me. I'm fired. I'm so fired. And that just gives him nothing to lose. And so when they go back for their afternoon session and they start recording again, they're playing their song through and all of a sudden he buzzes from the booth. And he's like, okay, we're going to need to do that one again. There's a mistake. And they're like, what? The Beatles. The Beatles. Uh, <laughs> the Beatles are like, there wasn't a mistake. He's like, there was a mistake. You need to start it over again. And they come <laughs> up to the booth. They come up to the booth and he's sitting there, little 20-year-old guy. And they're like, what mistake? He replays on the tape and they listen to it and they go, Okay, yeah, that was a mistake. Sorry. Wow. And they and they go back down to start recording. And at the end of the day, when he's expecting to get fired, they're like, okay, bye. He's like, do I come back tomorrow? And they said, <laughs> if, you, if you want to. 
and that was it. So he became he became this producer for the Beatles White Album. Ended up playing music like he played keyboards on some of the songs in in the White Album, and became this huge producer. That's awesome. Did Pretenders, did Sex Pistols, did Pink Floyd. And so then we fast forward, it's time for NXS to come knocking on this guy's door. So he is the producer for the album Listen Like Thieves. And it's just, it's another one of these stories that I know that we've told multiple times where they've recorded all of the music on the album. They have a day left of time to record. And Chris Thomas says, we still don't have a hit. And so they scramble and they put something together and they record it that day in a bit of passion and fury. And is panic. Called, <laughs> right. And the song that they record is called What You Need. This song was huge in 1985. What You Need reached that key piece of success that so many bands that we have talked about so far have reached that I feel like I'd be remiss not to mention it. It was covered by Weird Al Yankovic in his 1986 Polka Polka Party. Yes! Another appearance by Weird Al on the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. I'm not sure that the Muppets are going to come up in this episode, but we've got to have one or the other in just about every single episode, I think. All right. So after What You Need becomes this huge hit in 1985, they had this eight-month break where they're beginning to work on a new album, which we're going to talk about here in a minute. Their manager, Chris Murphy, decided to take a bunch of bands, have this big outdoor Australian concert. It was going to feature NXS and Jimmy Barnes and the Models and the Divinals and Mental as Anything all these sort of big Australian bands. And so to promote the tour, NXS recorded two songs. They recorded a song with Jimmy Barnes that was a cover of the Easy Beats tune, Good Times. And they also recorded the song, Laying Down the Law. Good Times, you may remember, as the theme song from the movie, The Lost Boys. The Easy Beats, you may remember, was the band started by Georgie Young, brother of Angus and Malcolm Young from our ACDC episode. Okay, so this song, Good Times, is a fantastic song. This is where I jump on board with NXS. First of all, I love the movie The Lost Boys. I'm a big fan of the soundtrack. One of the things about this band, like George Michael, like Def Leppard, like Bon Jovi, like Motley Crue, all these guys we're going to cover, is their timing is absolutely perfect for MTV. Absolutely. They have a great-looking, charismatic frontman that MTV can put at the front of their videos and teenagers all over the world will watch. And he has a very unique voice. Like he's, I mean, in this album that we're about to talk about, he grunts, he shouts, he whispers, and he's got this kind of breathy, it's not like what you would describe as a beautiful voice. It's just, it's full and resonant, like like a 12-string guitar. It's just, yeah. it's 
it, it's engaging. Like you want to listen to him sing. That's true. And he always had a, a complex about his voice. He didn't think he was any good. Oh, right. Yeah. We didn't even talk about how he became their singer. Like the Ferris brothers were together and were playing together and he was just over. And Andrew Ferris hands him a microphone and says, I want you to try singing. And he kind of awkwardly sings, but they said, that's it. That's what we want. And Kirk Pengilly had been the singer for his band with Tim Ferris. But once they heard Michael Hutchins sing, Kirk said, I'll be the backup singer from now on. So after the success of Listen Like Thieves, and particularly the song What You Need, they go back to the studio to work on their next album. Yes. In January 1987, they go into Rhinoceros Studios, which is in Sydney, and they start recording Kick. This is their sixth studio album. They bring Chris Thomas back to produce. They were on such a high from their success that Nicholas said that when they started recording, he said there was this really good feeling in the studio that this was going to be something big. The band had just come off a really successful tour of the U.S. on the back of Listen Like Thieves, which really broke them and they were on fire. According to guitarist and saxophonist Kirk Pengilly, he said, we wanted to make an album where all the songs could be possible singles. Andrew Ferris said, anyone can write a song that sounds contemporary. We wanted our songs to sound like the future. In preparation for this podcast, I watched some of their early videos. They seem more kind of like like Devo or something. They're yeah. they're kind of new wave, and they're definitely not the pop rock you know hit making band that they later became. All right, so I think you mentioned this, but I, I did want to talk about this for just a second. Towards the end of 1986, the band members gathered at the Sydney Opera House to rehearse songs that later became the album Kick. Is there any better place for an Australian band <laughs> to meet and rehearse? Other than the Sydney Opera House? I mean... Okay, so during the production of this album, they were still booking dates for the band's upcoming European tour. And this was irritating Chris Thomas because he felt like they were devoting so much time to that that they weren't creating good songs. And he said they had this incredible momentum building and were gaining fans all the time. And there was this audience waiting for this product, but I decided they didn't have the right songs yet. And so what he said to him was, you guys need to go be alone for a while and write some more songs. Before this album, like the band was credited as the writers of the song, but before they produced this album, based on the success of What You Need, Hutchins and Andrew Ferris said to the rest of the band, we would like to write all of the songs for this album. And the rest of the band said, that sounds good to us. <laughs> so we remember that song called What You Need that you guys wrote? And uh, <laughs> we think it's pretty good. So if you can come up with about nine or 10 of those, that'd be great. So Thomas, at the time that they were doing stuff, said, okay, you guys need to fly out to Hong Kong and you got to write some more material. And so that's what they did. They spent two weeks out there writing stuff. So many of the songs are these inspiration, five minute, 10 minute long masterpieces that just kind of are divinely inspired. So I don't know if we want to jump into this now, but before we break down the songs, their manager, Chris Murphy, gathers up the album has a meeting with the head of the record company, sits down with him, and they hit play, and they're going to listen to the entire album. The head of the record company listens to the entire album, sitting there, dead silent, arms crossed, and when the tape hit stop, he said, I'll give you a million dollars to start completely over and throw this in the garbage. <laughs> and the manager's like, what? What, what, are you, what are you talking about? 
I mean, this is the album. He's like, no, this is garbage. This is yeah. not good. Start over. And he said, I'm sorry, did you say a million dollars? He said, I'll give you a million dollars to start fresh. And he said at that time, none of them had seen a million bucks. I mean, so there's a real temptation. And Chris Murphy's like, dude, I mean, did you hear Need You Tonight? I mean, this is a smash hit. Are you crazy? And the guy's like, no, million bucks. And Chris Murphy, he walks out of the office and he says... I'm not doing that. And so he started to send the songs to college radio. When college radio started playing these songs and people started requesting them and all of a sudden, boom, Need You Tonight is like getting requested left and right. Mm -hmm. And they realized, this sounds like a hit. And then the record company backed down. Yeah. They finally decided to add kick to their release schedule for October. All right, D, we ready to dive in? Let's do it. First song, right off the bat, in your face, it's called Guns in the Sky. So this song came from, even though these were Australian guys, this came from Reagan's plan called the SDI, which was more colloquially known in our day back in the 80s as Star Wars. Uh <laughs> that there would be machines up in the sky that would be able to shoot down Soviet missiles to keep them from the Soviets from being able to bomb the United States. And I got to tell you that that were, that probably led to the Soviets going, you guys win, I guess I give you're going <laughs> to, you're seriously going to have lasers in the sky. So, so Michael Hutchins writes this song with his idea being, why are we going to spend money on lasers in the sky when there are so many more worthy causes that can help people there's actually a video for this one i don't, i had never seen it before but it's it, this is one of many videos directed by richard lowenstein from this album and it's it's just michael hutchins walking down a hallway filled with the band members intermingled with images of reagan and gorbachev and the words sdi okay so i i watched this video I, I really like this video, number one. It's uh, it's constant movement, right? So the song's really uh, rocky, you know, heavy guitars, especially for them. And it's a lot of yelling, like, guns in the sky, you know. But they're walking down the hallways, and they're all playing the guitars. I think I was telling you this. So, um, you know, some of the guys play keyboard. One of the guys plays a saxophone. You know, you have a drummer and a bass and guitarist. But they all know how to play guitar. And so Michael Hutchins, along with... He's being escorted by four other guys who are playing strong guitar and, and the drummer, but they're walking down the hallways of a hotel in constant movement, right? The camera just keeps moving. And it looks to me like it's the friggin' Overlook Hotel from The Shining. But, <laughs> but yeah, they're interspliced with big words, and it's, it's guns and sky and SDI, USA, CCCP, if you remember those days, right? Whoosh. And then at the very end, it says, in excess, stop. I love this song. It, it's a great kickoff song to the album. It's high energy. Like I said, it's a hard rock and sh- rocking song for them. Um, and it's like a chant. It's like a fist bumper, you know, in the concert, you're yelling guns in the sky. I will make mention, too, that during this time in my life, of course, I'm 14 in 1987, mm-hmm. the Star Wars defense program, I was yeah. all on board just because it's called Star Wars. <laughs> Star Wars, yes. When do we get to meet Luke? I freaking love Star Wars. <laughs> that, I that, heard that's the, a bit of brilliant marketing right there is what that is. Yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> I think that Han and Chewie are going to be chasing down missiles, but I'm not sure. <laughs> Some interesting lyrics on this one. I, so this song was actually not written by Andrew Ferris and Michael Hutchins. This is the, just Michael Hutchins by himself. He wrote this one all by himself. Right. Well, supposedly. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, so they, they as the duo wrote all of the songs in this album, but they had decided together, Hey, we'll, you'll, you'll have one. I'll have one. And so guns okay. in the sky was Michael Hutchins one and meditate was Andrew Ferris's one, but really they ended up helping each other out on those two, on both of those songs as well. Nice. It's really, really the duo on all of them. But yes, the guns in the sky was primarily Michael Hutchins. Okay. That's cool. There's some interesting lyrics in this one. I, you know, these are concert type lyrics, right? right. So you raise them up, you bring them down like a clock at two. It's concert stuff. Right. Put your hands Put like your hands a clock at two. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You in the back like a clock at two. So next track on the album is New Sensation. Okay, this song is amazing. This is a pop masterpiece. The hook is incredible on this song. One of the best songs on the album. Arguably the best. Not my favorite, but arguably the best song on the album. I would say the same thing. It's not my favorite, but it's arguably the best. This song reached number three on the U.S. charts. The number one song in the country that week, Hold On To The Nights by Richard Marks. Right. The number two song was... Pour Some Sugar on Me by Def Leppard. Flashback to our Hysteria episode. And then number three, New Sensation at number three. For the record, New Sensation is a way better song than Hold On to the Nights by Richard Marks. <laughs> Poor Richard Marks. I did actually <laughs> like a couple of his songs, but we do kind of trounce on him a little bit. We, we, we do, and I'm sorry about that. Maybe we should... No, no, no. no. I'm not saying we're wrong. I'm just... <laughs> hey, I These went are to still a way better songs. You went to a Richard Marks concert? I did. I oh, froze wow. my rear off too. So <laughs> my girlfriend forgot her coat and a cold front moved in and I froze my butt off. So, <laughs> so this yeah. song, the lyrics are about seizing the day, you know, the celebration of life, which is really, I mean, certainly for Michael Hutchins, what he's, he seemed to be all about the music. You, you got a banjo in there. I, I, I mean, that's, that's a surprise for me for an Australian new wave slash dance slash funk slash that rock band to throw some, bandage, some okay. banjo in there. But what you don't have in there is a trumpet, even though Michael Hutchins yells trumpet just before <laughs> the sax solo. <laughs> Tim Ferriss wanted this to be a trumpet solo. He wanted to do the trumpet solo on this track, but Finn Gilly, who always does their saxophone solo, said, no, sir. We are going to make this a sax solo because we do sax solos. So if you are only familiar with this song from the video, you're not going to know what I'm talking about because they took that trumpet part out because how stupid would it have looked for Michael Hutchins to go trumpet? And then he comes out with a saxophone in his hand. 
Okay, so the video for the song, like you mentioned, it was directed by Richard Lowenstein. It was yes. filmed on the roof of the municipal house in Prague. So Richard Lowenstein, before, like I said, he's going to come up a few more times, but I got to say it now. Richard Lowenstein also directed a movie called Dogs in Space, starring Michael Hutchins. Wow. I can't say that I've seen it. Um, this is actually their most played live song of all time. This is the video that has Michael Hutchins with his hair slicked back, right? Yeah, he's wearing a tie, like a coat and a tie. and Yeah, so totally different, totally different look. And when I went back and watched it again, I was like, this is very Robert Palmer. Like this is, I mean, he's got the band behind him instead of, you know, girls pretending to play music. But it's very um, Robert Palmer. And then we also have this very cool effect that's another part of the video where the band is singing in kind of a stop motion style the lyrics to the song as these tracers of lights go yeah, back that's really which is cool yeah very reminiscent of the sledgehammer video that's um right. that's right and so yeah there there's some pretty cool cool effects going on cool things that they did with this video I was going to mention in February of 2014, the miniseries NXS Never Tear Us Apart on Australia television, which I would love to see. I couldn't find it on YouTube. I was looking for it. I wanted to watch it. New Sensation charted again in Australia after that miniseries aired. Sometimes I like to think about the track listing, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. for me, an album ought to be like a concert, right? You start off with a bang. Then you kind of ramp up to your hits and then you mix in a few softers and then you close with the encore. Guns in the Sky is a great beginning. It's real short, but I think maybe New Sensation would have been a great kickoff song for this album. Sure. Just pop it in, push play, and you get that, boom, that hook right off the bat. Great song. Huge, huge song. Uh, this was their third single released March 31st, 1988. We ready to go on? Are we moving on? Yeah. All right. Yes. Next track on the album is Devil Inside Devil Inside Every single one of us The Devil Inside Here come the woman With a look in her eye Rest on leather With flesh on the mind Alright, so this was the second single Yep Released February 13th, 1988 this reached number two on the Hot 100. This is another killer song. Oh, yeah. The, the beat is so solid and so strong. It's, it is awesome. And the lyrics, again, they just ooze that kind of the forbidden and, you know, what you want that you can't get. And Hutchins said when he was writing these lyrics, he was in kind of a God and the devil phase. And he said he thought that it kind of had to do with the chaos of everything. And when you put it into religious terms, the devil is the thing that's chaotic. This is what he said. So that every time you think something is right, he comes in and changes everything. Yeah. Kind of a sad concept when you consider his life. I mean, his personal life ends in complete chaos, but we'll talk about that later. Yeah. But yeah, the beginning of this song, you have that sort of Caribbean type of sound. And then you have that real hard strum of the guitar. And I, at that moment, I'm like, I'm in. I'm in. This song is great. 
I'm five seconds into the song and I love it already. So video for this one, Kirk Pengilly was not a fan because he felt like it was too American, which I don't really know what that means, but (laughs) it was filmed in California. So I can guess, I can see how that would be pretty American. I can tell you that anytime I can forget all things about this video, but the, the girl in the white dress getting onto the back of the motorcycle with the black leather clad bikers, it's going to be etched into my memory for <laughs> I mean, this video had, I mean, it had the devil mask, right? Like Michael Hutchins had that devil mask on backwards yep. when he, he flips around to do the, ah, uh, uh, right? But it's in a bar. You've got the skateboard, which is kind of cool. You've got all these 60 girls. It has a Lost Boys type of feel to it. Yeah. And you have this kind of beat it moment where the two, you know, rival, you got the white preppy, you know, elite coming up against the black leather biker gang and then the band starts walking through like michael jackson pushing everybody apart but more (laughs) in more of a kind of uh i don't know sultry and you know move out of our way guys we're coming through kind of way (laughs) the reason why this video has a lost boys feel is because it was directed by joel schumacher who directed the lost boys who directed the lost boys yeah and he directed the video as a favor to them for them contributing those two songs to his movie. Yep. He did not direct another music video until... Kiss from a Rose. By Seal, which was on the soundtrack for... Batman Forever. Joel Schumacher did a good job with The Lost Boys, but I don't know that I, there's been another movie that I thought was great of his. He did a great job with The Lost Boys. <laughs> and I'll stop there. I know our good friend John Reed over at the 30-something podcast is a huge fan of Batman and Robin. That's a joke. Really? That's okay. a joke, son. It's <laughs> like, no, that's not right. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to the 30-something podcast. Love those guys. Uh, when you're done with this episode, download their episodes, especially the Batman from 89. Devil Inside made it to number two. I want to know what songs are good enough to keep this out of the number one spot. And as it turns out, there are two songs that are good enough to keep it out of the number one spot. All right? So right. yep. that week in 1988, the first time it was blocked, it was blocked by Get Out of My Dreams, Get Into My Car by Billy Ocean. And then the next week, Whitney, Whitney Houston. Houston jumps over him with Where Do Broken Hearts Go? Which is not even her best song. No, Devil Inside is way better than both of those songs. Now, yep. these songs come on on my radio. Secretly, I'm turning them up, but Devil Inside <laughs> is louder, Okay. I hate to tell you, but I don't think it's a secret anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, words are weapons sharper than knives. Okay, so, D, this brings us to probably their most famous, best-known song. Again, arguably the best song on the album. You know, we talk talk all the time about how much nostalgia is playing into our feelings behind a particular song. And I've got to say that the video for this one has a huge nostalgia impact for me. This video was on and on and on, and I watched it every time that it came on. I was fascinated. It, It was really, really unique style of video. And then their combination uh, of Meditate at the end, which was a totally different style, but was still very cool. Uh, I just was, yeah, this this is a song that I'm going to listen to and I'm still going to I'm going to think of all of the cool effects that were going on with this video. It's super, super cool video. Great song. So this was actually their first release. 
This is the one that their manager, Chris Murphy, sent to College Radio and said, play this. We think this yeah. is a hit. Play this song. See what happens. And it turns out it was a hit. This reached number one on the Hot 100. This is their only number one. It hit number one January 30th, 1988, knocking out of the number one spot, The Way You Make Me Feel by Michael Jackson. Flashback to our bad episode, episode two, I believe. Yeah, this one, it was also monumental on MTV. It won five different MTV music video awards, including Best Video. They ended up playing the final song that night. It was it was a big sweep for the MTV Video Music Awards. Yeah, they won five Moon Men on the MTV Music <laughs> Awards. You'll remember from the video seeing John Ferris standing up with no drums, but playing with drumsticks a la... <laughs> journey separate ways video although this is a much much cooler effect well they didn't do it at the wharf which you know (laughs) (laughs) this is the leather jacket no shirt video where michael hutchins is walking around so seductively that it makes me feel uncomfortable as a heterosexual but it (laughs) it it is something that blasted them into the spotlight this is the one that made them a worldwide major huge success so the guitar riff on this one is incredibly famous and it appeared to andrew ferris in his head as he was just about to get into a cab to fly to the airport to hong kong and so he said to the cab driver wait just a couple of minutes i'm gonna go grab something for my room And then he went up to his room and spent the next 45 minutes recording the riff and came back down an hour later and the cab driver was very unhappy. (laughs) (laughs) And Michael Hutchins started writing the lyrics immediately and wrote them all within 10 minutes. All right, we done with Need You Tonight. Well, here's the thing. Is Need You Tonight part of another song or not? That's an interesting question. I say no. Okay, well... You know, here's my then here's my next question for you. If you are listening to the radio and they play We Will Rock You and they don't play We Are the Champions after that, are you irritated? Yes. Me absolutely. Too. <laughs> yes. I don't so, really understand that, but they go together like peas and carrots for some reason. They were they're recording Mediate and somehow somebody had left a tape on of Need You Tonight in the background. And so as they're like, oh, wait, you know, there's something else going on. And they stopped it and they listened to it to see if you could hear the song. And as they listened, they're like, wait a minute, this actually fits really, really well. The click track was the same speed. And so Andrew Ferris said, uh, you know what? I think we need to kind of have these songs merge together at the end. And so that's exactly what they did. So I guess at this point, we're moving on to mediate, mediate. or meditate. Or meditate. Or, or try mediate. not to hate or love your mate or don't suffocate. <laughs> right, right. So this song is not was never released as a single, but they played it at the end of the video, Need You Tonight. It's modeled after Bob Dylan's Subterranean Homesick Blues video, if you've ever seen that. They flip over cue cards and there's words written on them. And then Kirk Pengilly has his saxophone solo at the end. Okay, so the, yeah, so the song Mediate was actually longer. The engineer said that when he rewound his tape and hit play just as Need You Tonight ended, it synced up so perfectly that he actually thought there was something wrong. And so that's how <laughs> that's how they came together. You've seen this video, right? 
Yeah. So the cue cards, just like in the Bob Dylan version, have some misspelled words on there. And then whenever he whenever he talks about an important date, you know the date that comes up? Yeah. 9-8-1945. Which, if you're in the United States like us, that sounds like September 8th, 1945, which is not a particularly eventful date. However... Uh-huh. That's not the format that people in Australia and New Zealand and some of the other countries in the world use, which is to put the day first and then the month and then the year. And then when you do that, that is the 9th of August, 1945, which... That refers to the date that the atomic bomb was dropped on Nagasaki, Japan. That's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah. When I saw that as a kid, I'm like, what the heck? First of all, I didn't have Google back then, so I couldn't yeah, look it up. Right. Like a special date... Even even if you had World Book or Encyclopedia Britannica, you could not just go look up a date. <laughs> That's right. I was going through National Geographic's left and right. I couldn't find anything. <laughs> okay. For me, Mediate is just kind of an extension of Need You Tonight. I don't know. What yeah, do you, you think of it? I mean, I'm- yeah. No, for me, this is this is a part of this is a part of this song to me. I I want that ending, especially if I'm watching the videos. But no, it's it's such a great transition that they do from Need You Tonight into this song, and then once that sax solo comes in, it's totally different. It's a totally different sound, but it's beautiful and I love it. All right, let's move on. That brings us to the song The Loved One. This is a original hit by the Australian R&B band called The Loved Ones. This was a hit in May of 1966. I love this song. This is one of my favorite songs on the album. This one, they had actually recorded it twice. The yeah. original the original studio version was done as a standalone single in March of 1981 in Australia only. And it ended up at number 20 on the national charts. And it was later on the compilation album they did in 82 called In Excessive. Then they re-recorded it for this album and it sounds better now i will say that i'm not a huge fan of the lyrics i mean obviously they didn't write the lyrics but i think what they do with the music on this is solid it's such a great intro the music is fantastic the band does a great job with this one and singing i mean there's not a problem with michael hutchins voice i just think the chorus of the song is kind of sophomoric i mean it's just not very interesting to me so it's not my favorite but but as far as the music goes, I think they do a great job. I love it. So we've covered Pearl Jam, and we've talked about how Eddie Vedder tries to cram a whole bunch of words into a song, and sometimes it's difficult to understand what he's saying. These just flow right out, and they're so singable. You have that, oh, baby, I love you so. I need you now. I want you back. I can't go on. When I, It's so simple. It's simple. It's simple. And boring. It's boring. I, I just think oh, it's boring. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it's great. Anytime we're driving down the road and I want fun Kathy to come out, right? <laughs> I put this in and turn it up and she is singing and waving and she and I are both big fans of the loved one. So oh, that's, uh, that's my awesome. lovely wife. So you mentioned earlier that their, their album in excessive that was released in 1982. So off of their album in excessive in 1982, they have a song called the unloved one. 
which I thought that was kind of interesting. This is for our Australian friends, all right? So in 2001, The Loved One was selected as the number six song on the list of top 30 Australian songs of all time. How about that? It's the number six Australian song of it's, all time. It's fantastic. I'm right. glad you love this song and that fun Kathy comes out. Can we Apparently, now talk about Never Tear Us Apart, please? I've been <laughs> waiting for this song. Well, all right. <laughs> Stop the tape, kick it out, flip it over. Let's go to side two. You ready? Yeah. Okay. First song is Wildlife. Oh, I skipped <laughs> Wildlife. Take one step. the dog. I love it. This was a new this was a new song for me. I did not own the kick album, and so I hadn't really listened to this song before. I think it's great. It's great. It's great. Yeah, it's, I don't, I think the song is about freedom. The lyrics are pretty uh, vague, um, but I think it's just kind of about doing what you want to do. And uh, even if it's bad, it ain't bad enough. So it's, <laughs> it's it. That's, I think it's about going out and having a little fun, living the wildlife. I mean, this is not one of the stronger songs in the album, but it's still good. I mean, I don't think there's a bad song on this album. This is a great concert song. This is not a skipper. No, this is not, not a skipper. This is a good song. No. This is a really good song. Yeah, for sure. I think I would say it's still a strong track. Okay. All right. And it's a good it's a good intro to the side too. You yeah. talked about the, you know, the beginning of the album needs to be something big and I think this is a good this is a good beginning. I'm trying not to gush over every song. <laughs> well, I mean, I just just telling you, I'm, I, I don't think that there, I mean, I think there are, there, there is a bad song on this album. So okay. All right. I will get there. It's just not this one. This one's a good one. Okay. Very good. I think there's, there's one part in the song that he says, uh, what we do, what we do, he repeats himself. And that yeah. little like part right need, there what you need. sounds yeah. like what you need. Yep. So, and that makes it fun. I, I, I like picking that up. My ear tingles. I'm like, Hey, that's what you need. <laughs> yes. So, all right. So we both like wildlife. It's not a single but it's not a skipper. It's a good song. Can we talk about Never Tear Us Apart? I've been waiting and waiting. This is my favorite In Excess song. I'm dying. Can we talk about Never Tear Us Apart now? Let's talk about Never Tear Us Apart. Don't ask me What you know is true Don't have to tell you I love your precious heart this is so good. I don't want to talk. I want to just listen to the song because you have beautiful parts throughout the song. You start off with this kind of waltzy string section going and the lyrics are simple and beautiful and romantic and sensual. And then you have this break and the guitar comes in and it's hard and it's rock and roll and it's awesome. What a fan fantastic song yeah this song is amazing it's amazing i like it a little bit <laughs> <laughs> no this song this song is incredible i could listen to it all day i love it so this song when they originally did it it was a piano ballad and it didn't have the orchestra in there at all and chris thomas the producer said it was a fats domino bluesy kind of rolling stonesy early 60s song i heard it and i thought we can do more and i came up with the idea to substitute the strings for the piano 
and that changed everything. It was what the song deserved because in the structure and the lyrics, it was so strong already. And then you got more of these lyrics and they're intensified. And then you have the break and that saxophone. Holy crap. When that saxophone comes in, oh my gosh. song that exudes passion and sensuality with all of these kind of elements you know it's a waltz along with a rock song along with the the jazzy saxophone it's it's amazing it is absolutely incredible i have a very specific memory about this song i will take to my grave every time this song comes on the first day of my sophomore year in high school this is the song that my alarm clock kicked on. It will always be to me the first song I heard on the first day of school my sophomore year. This, the video for this one, another one directed by Richard Lowenstein, it was done in Prague. And you'll remember it's kind of this long one-shot take that starts off really with a an establishing shot of the city itself and the the they're in a park and then Michael Hutchins is walking along in this very kind of autumn weather and he walks by the string quartet as they're playing and it is the video matches the feeling of the song perfectly so this song has two stops in it right one at the 48 second mark and one mm-hmm. at the 149 mark right during live shows they would stop and the band would turn out the lights and they would wait I could just see this being great in concert, right? So that hard stop in the song and just kill the lights and just let the crowd just get worked up. And then... And then come in with the... Boom, 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 boom. I feel justified, and this is a sad thing that I'm about to say, but when Michael Hutchins died, they had his funeral at St. Andrew's Cathedral, and the band members were the pallbearers, and as they carried his casket... This was the song that was playing in the background. The yeah. kind of idea that even though you're gone, we'll never be apart. And this, the lyrics, I was standing, you were, there. you were there, two worlds collided, and they could never tear us apart. I don't know if you've had those moments in life where you must have, everybody, ha- everybody has had these moments where you like a girl, you're with the girl together, you haven't expressed your feelings for her she hasn't expressed feelings for you but suddenly without any real preparation or idea your eyes just lock and then you throw yourselves at each other in a passionate kiss and embrace and i think of that every time when i hear this song just those worlds colliding it's awesome all right let's talk about the chart history for just a second i think this is interesting okay uh this song charted again in february of 2014 after that australian tv series never tear us apart the miniseries on nxs which i would love to see so it peaked at number 11 in australia surpassing its original peak of 14 back in 1988 in the united states this song got to number seven the week of November 5th, 1988. The number one song in the country that week, Kokomo by the Beach Boys. I, I cannot imagine why this wasn't, at the very least, a top five song. The number four song that same week, yeah. The Locomotion by Kylie Minogue. 
who Ooh, yeah. Michael Hutchins and Kylie Minogue were kind of Australia's hot couple there for a little yeah. bit. Are we done with Never Tear Us Apart? Yeah. I hate to be, but yeah, yes, yes. Okay, so this brings us to a song called Mystify. All veils and misty, streets are blue. So I'm going to say here at the beginning that I very much like the way that the beginning of the song starts, but the video, I like it even better. I'm with you. I totally agree with you. In the video, it is just Michael and Andrew Ferris sitting at a piano and going over the song almost as if they're writing it. I don't know how they did the video and how all this worked, but it's just the piano and Michael Hutchins singing like they're working together. It is not even I'm performing. It's I'm just singing like he's putting his hair in a ponytail. It's very casual. And it's it's a much better introduction to the song. And then when it when the big part kicks in, that's the point that you get the whole band coming in and you've got this very you got a black and white style where it's like they're recording. They're they're doing their recording of the song in the studio. Yeah. I- when I watch the video, to me, it looks like you're getting a, a look behind the curtain. So Andrew right. Ferris is at the piano. Michael Hutchins is kind of working with him. He's like, okay, yeah, do that again. All right. And then he just starts singing. It looks like they're writing the song. I need perfection. Some twisted selection. That tangles me. This was actually the fifth single released. It was released in March of 1989. Didn't chart in the U.S., but I I really don't know why. I mean, the video's cool. The song's great. I I don't know why it didn't quite strike a chord with with the American audience at that time. But anyway, this song was written. It's a fantastic song. Yeah. I was going to let you know. I reached out to a college and high school friend of mine, Jeannie Alexander, and I knew she was a big NXS fan. I just sent her a text this week and I said, hey, I know you're a big NXS fan. What what do you have for me on kick? You know, what, what memories do you have? And so she wrote me some stuff, but specifically she said that Mystify is her favorite song. She says it's silky smooth and powerful. The lyrics that start with that silky, silken moment and just meshes with the twisted, tangled, powerful, wild with power. I said, how could one not love it? And uh, so she's a big fan of Michael Hutchins. She said that was kind of one of her first big crushes. She said he was a good boy and a bad boy mixed together. So (laughs) Jeannie, thanks for that. We appreciate you. Thanks for listening. And uh, thanks for that little tidbit on Mystify. Very well said. Very well said. All right. So this brings us to the song Kick. This is a good song. <laughs> this song just makes me feel good, man. This is a fun song. It's got those strong horns and it's upbeat. Uh, sometimes you kick, sometimes you get kicked. You know, it's just, uh. I love it. This was the song that they led concerts off with in 1987. And it oh, makes yeah. sense because it's just, it's high energy, upbeat. We're getting ready to have a great time. Get on board. How can you not be excited about what's to come when this is what leads you off? That's for sure. I think this one would have been a better first song on either side A or side B. No, I agree with you. That's totally a kickoff song. Yeah. Yeah. And really, I mean, they got the title of the album. This really kind of makes sense to be the number one slot, I think. Sure. Yeah. 
instead of Guns in the Sky. I don't know why they didn't release this one as a single. It is a quality song that I, I could see doing well in the charts had they released it. Yeah, the only thing about this song that I didn't like as much, the sax solo is not quite as full and as energetic as I think it could be. Uh, I would probably put a guitar solo in right there that's high energy, fun, get after it. But that's just me. Moving on. After that fun song, that brings us to a song called Calling All Nations. This is a song you don't like. Yes. The music is okay, but... This is the, I mean, Mediate was like a minute and a half long of this repetitive kind of rappy kind of na 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 And this is an entire song of that. This is bland and a boring melody. Okay, well, that's fine. I still like this song. I'm not skipping this song if I'm listening. However, this sounds like a broken down version of New Sensation. In fact, I thought it was when I heard it for the first time. It has that same feel. It's just unlike New Sensation, it doesn't have a melody to it. It's, right, that's right. It's like a droning. It's it's not, I don't enjoy it. My biggest memory of this song came the summer of 88, and I, I think I told you the story off air, but MTV gave away this big NXS prize package the summer of 88 and i remember going wow that'd be freaking awesome so mtv had this big summer giveaway and it basically it was win tickets to see nxs and you know travel around the world i, I don't know exactly where it was but you, you got to go see nxs for free and it was the call in all nations a uh, concert prize from mtv so that for me i'm like oh yeah freaking yeah call in all nations but one of the things that they gave away if you won this prize from MTV was a Texas trailer park. I mean, <laughs> what? A Texas trailer park. That was the okay. prize. Okay. I've always wanted to own a Texas trailer park, and I missed my opportunity the yeah. summer of 1988. Broken anyway, dreams. I like this song, but it, it other sometimes than you kick, Sometimes you get kicked. <laughs> sometimes you kick. Sometimes you get kicked. This is uh, probably the. Other than Mediate, it's my probably my least favorite song on the album, but I still like it. Not a bad song on the entire album for me. I think what NXS did so well is they found great hooks, they paired them with great sing-along choruses, and then they minimized everything else, and they just kind of put those out front. But this is just not one of their strongest offerings. This brings us to the final song on the album, Tiny Daggers. What a happy way to end the album. I like it so much. This could be the end of a John Hughes movie. Molly Ringwald is finally getting to go out with the boy that she loves. I. <laughs> this is a great 80s song. This is so very 80s. I like it. It makes it makes me feel good. This is a feel-good song. Like we talked about the track listing, this is a great encore song, or like a close-it-out song. Yeah. It's a thanks for listening, feel good, thanks for buying the CD, come back next time. Yeah, yeah I, I love this song too. I think this could have been a, a successful single. I, I am behind it as one that they could have released and, and done something with. This is one of those where, if in my mind anyway, if they had made the, we talked about the 
road concert video where it's, you know, you travel with the band and it shows them backstage and then they go out front and, you know, similar to like Home Sweet Home. Anyway, one of those videos where you see them rehearsing, you see them prepping, and then they come out and they're pumping their fist and the crowd, I'm thinking Wembley Stadium, you know, you know, 90,000 people pumping to Tiny Daggers. This song does it for me. I love it. Yeah. So the lyrics, the lyrics are about, about that girlfriend who doesn't like you anymore. <laughs> 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 Whatever it was that I did that put those tiny daggers in your heart. I, I'm sorry. Kind of. Do you ever think about me? Maybe I shouldn't even ask that question. It's funny that it's, it's those kind of uh, sad lyrics to a, such a feel-good song, you know? Yeah. I think it's cool that they, they come right out of the gate on this song. Boom, you're in the middle of the song, and it starts off with the chorus. Yeah. It's such a good song. It's a great, great closeout to the album. It makes me feel good. All right, so that wraps up the track listing for Kick. No bad songs for me. I'm turning it up. I'm having a great time. I'm feeling good. All right, Jason. So this album peaked at number three on the Billboard charts. Yes. Number two was Dirty Dancing. Yes. And the number one spot was held by... George Michael's Faith. Which we will take up on our next episode to determine who is the best pop star of October 1987 releases. (laughs) (laughs) Come back next week as we dive into another fantastic full throttle hit machine, George Michael's Faith from 1987.